I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 107. This podcast is part of the American Gastroenterological Association Colitis Conversations Program. If you've listened to even a few episodes of this show, you'll have heard how some patients travel a long road to getting a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. Some of the barriers in diagnosing ulcerative colitis include how insidious the symptoms can be and embarrassment over talking about bowel movements. However, being really clear about symptoms and how they are affecting quality of life is important to getting a diagnosis and the right treatment. To get to the bottom of this topic, I speak to Rashid Clark, ulcerative colitis and J-pouch patient and author of three tablets twice daily, and Dr. Christina Ha, an IBDologist at the IBD Center at Cedars-Sinai. We discuss the ways patients and healthcare professionals can communicate better, including the information we need from one another to get on the right path. Our topic today is getting a timely, accurate diagnosis. My guests are Rashid Clark and Dr. Christina Ha. Dr. Ha, thank you for coming on About IBD. It's great to be here with you and Rashid. Thanks for having me. Rashid, this is going to be your second, technically third, since we talked so much, I split an episode into two parts with you. Thank you so much for coming back. As always, happy to be here. And I noticed that too, because I was looking back at the past episodes uh, in a totally non-narcissistic way for which episodes <laughs> I was on before. And I noticed that you had split it into two. So yeah, happy to do a third episode here. You, wait a minute. Uh, hold up. You did not know that I split it into two? You didn't listen after? No, I did. I just, I couldn't remember now because it was back in 2019, I think it was. So I, was, I just wanted a little refresher and, uh, you know, re- remember how famous I was back then when I did that two full episodes with you on the About IBD podcast. <laughs> That was such an experience editing. It was one of the most intense edits I've ever done, but it was also the most fun. So I'm looking forward for you to repeat that experience for me I'll again try to make today. It easier for you this time. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting an accurate diagnosis, we know that's a huge problem in the IBD space. So, Dr. Ha, I want to start this conversation by asking you about the symptoms of ulcerative colitis, because patients might not realize that the symptoms that they're having are not normal, especially if they've been coping with them for a while and they've been normalizing them. Would you please describe the ulcerative colitis symptoms that might bring someone into your office? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It's tricky because it's not necessarily something that just pops up out of the blue. It's a little bit more insidious. So the symptoms may gradually appear and start to build over time. And a lot of people actually tend to get used to it because it's just something that they've rearranged their lives around. But the classic symptoms of ulcerative colitis, and I say classic because there's also atypical symptoms of ulcerative colitis, are to have bloody diarrhea with some abdominal cramping and something that's called urgency. And so the tricky thing is, what do we mean by bloody diarrhea? Well, diarrhea essentially means that your stools are more frequent, the consistency is more loose. It doesn't always have to just be runny, watery diarrhea. But if you usually go to the bathroom once a day, now you're going three times a day and the consistency is softer and you're seeing blood actually a majority of the time, more than 50% of the time, 
Or you're noticing that there's these cues like, hey, I have to run to the restroom or we may be into running into some issues. That's urgency. So the rectal urgency where you feel like you need to run to the restroom, you're concerned about having an accident, or you have this sense of incomplete evacuation. Sometimes we call it dry heaves of the rectum, where you go to the restroom and you feel like you're done, but then you have to run back and go um, some more. That's actually not one bowel movement. That's three or four bowel movements, and sometimes just blood or mucus come out. So those are usually the initial signs of ulcerative colitis, but then they can gradually build up to include fevers, weight loss, joint pains, canker sores in your mouth, and overall fatigue. So I always tell people, don't disregard blood in your stool, especially if it's consistent and persistent. Yeah, that's one of the things whenever someone tells me that they have blood in their stool, I'm like, that's, hold up, wait a minute, that's got to go and get checked out. Even if you think, even if it's happened before, you need to go and get that looked at right away. Yeah, because 20-year-olds don't get hemorrhoid bleeding all the time. And so let's let's just be clear about that. <laughs> Unless you're in the john for like six hours of your day nonstop, you're not having hemorrhoidal bleeding all the time. And that's a very good point because people are often told that. I've spoken to so many patients who they are going to their doctor, the thing that they're telling their doctor about, the diarrhea people I think sometimes just ignore and normalize or think that they are living with a virus or aren't eating right or whatever. But it's the blood that sends them to the doctor. And then the doctor says something like, well, it's just hemorrhoids. you know." And then whenever I'm talking to someone, my next question is, well, did anyone look? Mm-hmm. That, did you have a rectal exam? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that answer is no. And I think that's where we can get into these issues where people go for a long time without ever getting diagnosed properly. Absolutely. Because if you don't look, you you can't get an answer. And nowadays there's even s- simple things like stool tests or blood counts or inflammatory markers that sh- that can actually help understand what the next step should be. Because maybe it is. Maybe you are the person who just has a hemorrhoid, in which case let's treat it. But if it's not, let's figure out what it is sooner rather than later. And, you know, although we're talking about colitis, the differential, the possibilities also include um, other things that could be a lot more ominous. I mean, we are definitely seeing, for example, colon and rectal cancer occurring across different age groups much earlier. And there are multiple reasons why, but these are certainly things that we don't want to ignore. Right. Absolutely. And Rashid, you are an ulcerative colitis patient, although I know that you, uh, like me, you live with a J-pouch today. Correct. When were you diagnosed? What what year or what age were you when you were diagnosed? So I'll give you both. It was uh, 2008, and I was 24 at the time of uh, diagnosis. What sent you to your doctor, or what was the final straw? What, what uh, made you seek treatment? So basically everything that we were just talking about in terms of the hallmark symptoms uh, of ulcerative colitis, and it was bloody diarrhea for me. That was the that was the thing that really got me in. Uh, it, it really did hit me pretty suddenly, uh, the diarrhea that is. And that was alarming in itself. But then when the blood actually started to appear in the stool, that's when it became more of a warning sign and the urgency. So the feeling that, uh, you know, I had to go and if I couldn't go in the next few seconds, then, you know, an accident was going to happen. And accidents did happen. In fact, before I finally uh, went to see uh, a doctor at a walking clinic at the time. And the fact that it was urgency, bleeding and frequency. So it was about every hour on the hour. It was really strange that I was able to have the, that kind of frequency, almost that timed nature of it, but uh, pretty much at the top of the hour, every hour, all day, all night, 
Uh, and, you know, you would have thought that something before that would have sparked me to go to the doctor. Uh, but when it got to that point, that's when I finally made the decision to go uh, seek treatment. And I think the fact that I didn't have a family doctor when the symptoms arose was maybe a part of the reason why I why I held off on going uh, eventually to a walk-in clinic. Um, the fact that I didn't have a, a family doctor may have delayed things a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right. I think that's true. And especially for people like you, you were a young man, you end up in a situation where you have these symptoms, and then you don't know what to do with them. Uh, it makes sense that you would go to a walk in clinic. But did they know what to do with you? <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense that they didn't. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure if it's just, you know, from you know, not seeing this an awful lot. Uh, it, it seemed like they went through the I guess what I would have assumed to be the standard process of like, you know, doing blood tests, uh, stool sample tests, checking for parasites, checking for infections, that sort of thing. All the questions about have I traveled, have I traveled, have I traveled? Yeah. Answers no every time. How many times I can tell you that? No, I haven't left the country in the last several years, but okay. Um, and uh, once all those things were, you know, came back negative, then it, it did feel like there was a little bit of a confusion as to what to do next. And it took a long time to actually get a diagnosis because it took a long time to get a test for a barium enema or a colonoscopy, which I feel like should have been done more uh, expediently when, when those symptoms came up and when all the blood tests and stool tests came back negative. Um, so I think that the delay in getting the proper testing is probably what led to a delay in a diagnosis as well. And, you know, if I could jump in, that's we see this all the time. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things is that if you've been having symptoms that have been going long for, consistently for over two weeks, it is not an infection. It is not just food poisoning, particularly if there's blood in your stool and you're having a lot of frequency in your accidents. It is not a parasite. It's not that because it, those symptoms don't last that long. And many of those are self-limited. While you should rule out for infection, especially in a younger, otherwise healthy person who's not on immunosuppression yet, um, that should signal you need to see a gastroenterologist or you need to do some testing to rule out non-infectious causes. And I think it's really important because oftentimes we understandably just, you know, listen and say, all right, they said it's an infection or I should change my diet or take these antibiotics. But it's really important to, to press further and say, well, you know, would an infection really last this long? Couldn't it be something else? And when should we look for those other options? I think that's really important to say because also a lot of people seem to think that they have an infection or a parasitic infection of some kind. And maybe that's just because that's, like you say, it's self-limiting and that would actually be an easier outcome than dealing with something that is more serious and long-term. So just thinking that it's a, it could be a parasitic yeah. infection, even though it's common in certain populations, but it's really not all that common. And it's not all irritable bowel either. That also yeah. just really gets under my skin because irritable bowel won't present with this kind of bloody diarrhea with urgency. We're sitting here, we're talking about these symptoms because we're two long-term patients and a gastroenterologist, and we're like, hey, diarrhea and bloody diarrhea and mucus and all the things. But these are embarrassing, you know? It was mm -hmm. embarrassing to go into the doctor's office this first time and be like, I'm having the bloody poos. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ha, is there anything that can help patients feel more comfortable? Is there anything that you do or that you've heard that your colleagues do to sort of get people to actually tell you what's going on? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I try to start every conversation with how can I help you today? 
And that's the main thing is that we need to set a tone that's saying we're all in this together. We're working as a team. And our goal at the end of the day is to help. And, you know, we uh, and I also try not to get right into the heart of the matter right away. Uh, You know, we talk about, well, you know, tell me what's going on describe a little bit more. And I will press. And when people say, yeah, you know, I'm having a a little bit of abdominal pain. I said, okay, well, tell me about it. Point on your abdomen where it is. And can you describe it? You know, what sort of things have been limited? You know, are you able to get through an entire day of work without using the restroom? How often do you get up at night? And, you know, and I even use, well, this is probably going to be edited out, but I... (laughs) ask them, you know, can you pass gas without moving your bowels? Can you shart, not fart? And that oftentimes lightens up the conversation. And I think it's really about building the trust because by the time a lot of people see me, they've actually been maybe brushed aside by a number of providers or been given treatments or recommendations that just haven't worked. And now they're so sick that uh, part of it is setting the tone to know that I want to help and we're not going to stop until we find a solution that works. I've never had a doctor ask me if I could fart and not shart. Um, But I will say, though, that I think that is a really great question. And you don't have to use those terms. Maybe you can use other ones if you feel whatever you're comfortable with and your patient is comfortable with. But no, that's really, really important. And Rashid and I are both J-Pouch patients. And we hear from people like us that that is a sort of a delineator sometimes in letting you know how you are, whether or not you can actually um, pass gas and if you can pass it without sitting on the toilet. Um, Rashid, how about you? When you went in and you, you saw these folks who you didn't have a family doctor, you didn't have an intimate relationship uh, with a provider, and you were going in cold talking to some person, telling them about your, your, your bloody poops, what was that like for you? How did you uh, get through that? Well, it was strange, uh, to say the least, because I'd never talked about that kind of thing openly with anyone. And it was never something that I had gone to seek medical attention for before. So I tried to do it in the most like scientific way possible, I guess, to try to make it seem as though like it wasn't like an embarrassing thing. It's just like, I have diarrhea. Yeah. There is blood in the stool. I have the urge to go this many times per day. Like I was trying to, I don't know, be as straight faced about it as I could, uh, but not to the point of downplaying symptoms. I think I downplayed symptoms when I talked about my symptoms with non-medical people, with family, with friends, with colleagues, whoever else. But I tried to be as as open about the the problems that I was having when I talked to doctors. And I didn't find it uh, too embarrassing. It was nerve-wracking in the sense of trying to figure out what was causing it and what could be behind it. And back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier in the parasites, I was actually hoping for that because, like, yeah. well, that's that's something that mm-hmm. you can treat, right? I mean, it's kind of an, it's, it's a one-shot. This is a weird thing. I'll deal with it and then move on. If there were nerves from uh, those initial conversations with doctors, it was just from what was actually happening to me and trying to get to the bottom of it. Pardon the pun. And, you know, what I will say is I'm somebody who I like, I need the detail and I like the detail. So I'll tell patients or people I take care of, listen, I'm knee deep in poop all day long. So we're going to get down and dirty about your school. And, you know, I like analogies and I, I, and it's hard to describe your poop. It really is. You know, everyone says, oh, I have diarrhea, but I need to know, well, what did it look like? So I use analogies. Was it pure water? Did it look like oatmeal? What about pudding? That poop emoji, soft serve? Did it look like little rabbit pellets, Tootsie Rolls? And that way we can get, because how you present 
tells us how you're going to respond. Okay, well, it went from watery to oatmeal. Okay, that's not terrible because there's a little bit more consistency, a little bit more form. So maybe we're heading in the right direction. But it went if it went from, you know, uh, uh, a nice log to oatmeal, then that tells me, okay, well, maybe we're heading in the opposite direction. We need to make adjustments. I never realized how many food analogies there I were. Know. For <laughs> <laughs> if you go into GI, you've got to love food and you got to be okay describing everything with respect to food. <laughs> Absolutely. There was a Twitter thread and I'll have to go back and find it because I don't think I saved it or retweeted it or anything, but there have been several people on Twitter who have taken the Bristol stool chart and made analogies with food. And in some cases, they've done it for their sort of their local food, whatever country that they're in. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it, Dr. Ha might say to somebody, okay, does it look like oatmeal? I mean, I don't know, maybe everyone knows what oatmeal looks like. But in another country, maybe they use a different food to, mm -hmm. to describe it. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. And it, and it made a lot of sense. And We've all seen like the candy bar, you know, people mm -hmm. taking candy bars and using them for for uh, the Bristol stool chart, which maybe I don't think I'm on board with that because I like a good candy bar and I yeah. would like to continue no, don't touch to my enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's lots of aspects to caring for a person with ulcerative colitis and lots of aspects to the disease and different symptoms. But I think sometimes patients are not connecting things or there's things that they don't want to bring to their doctors. Dr. Har, you already brought up like going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Are there other things that your patients probably don't tell you or sometimes don't tell you, but actually like you, you really want to know and it would help if you knew it? So I think, you know, Rashid had kind of alluded it to it earlier. What I find is that, you know, most commonly people downplay their symptoms. And, you know, and I think that this is where knowing the people that you take care of helps and um, just knowing a little bit more about their story, because now I can get a read and I can say, okay, well, you know, but is this really true? So, you know, are you really only having two bowel movements a day? Then I'll ask, well, how about how many trips to the bathroom? This is where the question about passing gas without moving your bowels or passing just blood and mucus um, comes to play. And then I'll ask, are you able to get through an entire day of work? Can you go shopping? Can you go out with your kids to their soccer meets and not worry about where a restroom is? And then another thing that I'll ask is, okay, I know you have some symptoms right now. And, you know, although in our scientific medical minds, our goal is we want to heal the colon. And I always explain that, but I also say, let's come up with another personal goal. So within the next, so what is important for you to be able to do in three to six months? And, you know, what can't you do right now? And oftentimes that'll tell us, okay, well, I can't go on a hike all day. Well, why can't you go on a hike all day? It's because I have to stop often to use the restroom or I'd like to get a good night's sleep. Well, okay, but why can't you get a good night's sleep? And this helps tease things out because I think that we oftentimes need to find more circuitous ways sometimes to really get a sense of how often and how significant people's symptoms are. If you just say, well, you know, how many times do you go back to the bathroom during the day? How many times at night? How often do you see bleeding? You know, do your joints hurt? And then you just check mark boxes and you can say, oh, you have, you only have mild symptoms. You don't need anything else. Um, we don't need to do any more. And I think that that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Rashid, when you were talking to your doctors, either in the beginning or even now, is there something that would make you feel more comfortable? You said you were sort of very scientific about it, but I think approaching it from that angle 
might also leave out sort of the quality of life or the emotional aspects to things. Is there a way that someone could have spoken to you that might have made you elaborate a little bit more? I think just the way that uh, Dr. Ha had uh, framed some of the questions in terms of day-to-day activities, like, can you do this? Can you do that? Or what's getting in the way of doing those things? And I think for me, the initial consultations with doctors uh, who weren't really uh, necessarily specialists in in IBD or anything gastro-related, like things were a little bit tougher than it was very scientific, clinical language when we talked about symptoms. But when I actually eventually got in to see a GI who was terrific and, you know, had a, you know, a much better uh, rapport with him. You know, he was someone who had seen it all, could understand what uh, what kind of symptoms were uh, that I was dealing with and how they may have impacted day-to-day life. So when you actually finally meet a doctor who gets it, then mm-hmm. it becomes a lot easier to talk about what your day-to-day life is like and how it's being inhibited by the disease or by the symptoms. Uh, that's what I think in, in terms of other things that could have helped uh, just make things more comfortable. Looking at how my disease progressed long-term, I would have liked to know a little bit more of a roadmap. I know it's a pretty big ask to say like, you know, here's what yeah. your future is going to look like with IBD or with uh, with uh, ulcerative colitis. But knowing that uh, you're going to start with, say, treatment A, and in case that doesn't work, we move to treatment B, and then from there to treatment C, and then you know, down the line to potentially you know, ostomy or surgery. So having a little bit more of a, a long-range view for what life with ulcerative colitis could look like, I think that would have made things a little bit more comfortable for me as well, because I was very much focused on that moment that I was in with my medical team and trying to get things under control at that time. And I kind of lost sight of what things might look like a year from now, five years from now, however uh, many years beyond that appointment. And I think that's something that may have made things a little bit more comfortable at the time. Uh, Rashid, you bring up such an important point. And this is hopefully the the new wave of how we approach taking care of people with ulcerative colitis is because it's not perfect and we're always trying to strive for more predictors of progression, but we do know some. And I think it's always very important whenever we're meeting somebody and we're talking about a treatment strategy to say, okay, this is why we need to invest in addressing this now because of these features that are present right now. We know that the risks are this. And so, but we also know that if we can control it, we can potentially mitigate or decrease the likelihood of these things happening. And by the same token, if we're starting a treatment, we always should say, okay, these are our expectations of how this is going to work. This is when it should work. This is our potential adverse effects. And if it doesn't work by time X, then we're going to regroup and come up with a plan B. That is how the conversations should be when we take care of anybody living with inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis. So those points that you're bringing, hopefully a lot of us in the medical field are now trying to absorb those and change the way that we frame our visits. Dr. Ha, do you have any advice for patients when they're coming in and they feel as though their symptoms aren't being addressed by their team currently, other than getting a second opinion or, or, you know, maybe seeing an IBDologist? How can they get those things addressed? 
Well, the first is we, you need to make sure that you're getting routine follow-up. If you're having active symptoms, it's not a strategy where you are given a regimen and then you have your next follow-up in three to six months or question mark. You need to have routine follow-up, especially if you have activity. I actually think this is a positive of teams where it also includes advanced practice providers, such as nurse practitioners and PAs, you know, having scheduled check-ins, maybe every one to two weeks, two to four weeks with symptom updates is important so that people can assess these trends, you know, getting your routine lab work. So for example, when I talk to um, the people I take care of, I tell them, okay, these are the symptoms that are bothering you right now. So these are the symptoms that I need a symptom update in one to two weeks. So right now, I need you to, to let me know, even as a simple message, maybe through your our EMR or through our, AP, uh, our advanced practice providers saying, okay, tell me what your stool frequency, consistency, bleeding, these symptoms that were active right now, tell me how they're doing. That way, this serves as your symptom diary and we can follow things over time. So that's why when we regroup, I know what's been going on a week to week basis. And you need to know these are the symptoms that we're concerned about. And if you're not experiencing improvement, then um, we need to do something different. If I start you on a treatment regimen, you need to know how it works. And especially for some of the medicines, how it's given because you can't give an enema to somebody and not explain how to use it or a suppository or foam because those contraptions are <laughs> foreign. Um, and if you don't explain, then it's not going to work or people may not want to use it. And so I think that really providing in that initial visit, which is going to be more detailed, the expectations from both parties. Well, this is what you should be expecting from your provider. And this is what the provider should be expecting from you so that we can work together because that's what shared care is about. Right. Uh, you know, Using enemas way back in the day as part of a colonoscopy prep, I'm trying to remember if anyone actually told me how to use one mm -hmm. or if it was basically just go and buy one and then read the instructions that are in the box. No. I really feel like we were kind of on our own. I probably shouldn't say this. I kind of reenact it, but I also have cartoons that kind of show. Because there is, there's positioning that's involved. You yes. got to be on your left side. There's got to be a knee bent. You got to insert. But if you don't explain, I mean, I don't think I would use unless somebody explained to me why I should be, you know, putting that in a direction that's tra traditionally unidirectional um, and, you know, how long we should use it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's just a foreign concept. Simple things like that. Somebody needs to teach people how to do this or explain. Right. I think that's right. And then also feeling as though if you get into a situation where you aren't sure if you're doing it right or you think mm -hmm. you may be actively doing it wrong, that you can come back and say, this is what I did. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, is it right? Is it wrong? You know, where do we go from here to have that two-way street? That's important. But Amber, I also want to mention something that you had alluded to earlier about, you know, getting a second opinion. And what I would say is, you know what, if you have a provider who is so cocky to say that they don't need you to get a second opinion, then they're the wrong provider. You know, I take care of people living with Crohn's and colitis, you know, all day. That's all I do. And I routinely say, you know what? Uh, we may need to look for some more options. Why don't we get another opinion to discuss what the options are so we can come back to the table? Because this is a team sport. It's not an, a one-on-one -on -one event and no person has all the answers. And I think that one of the things, um, because we do have IBD centers out there, but there may not be directly accessible to everybody, is asking for that opinion early so that we can get a roadmap to try something sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. So I always encourage getting additional opinions if you feel like you're stuck. Yeah. 
Rashid, obviously, you know, you had surgery, same as I did for your ulcerative colitis. So how did you know? How did you know when something stopped working? Because it can be insidious, I think, and sometimes you don't even really realize what's going on until somebody else looks at you and says, hey, that's not right. So how did that go for you? Yeah, well, I think before I answer that, I remember looking at the questions that you sent me ahead of time and seeing that question about, like, did treatment stop working for you? And like, did treatment stop working for me? Of course it stopped working for me. <laughs> I don't think I would know you if, uh, if treatments hadn't stopped working for me. I know, exactly. Uh, but uh, the, the biggest uh, hallmark uh, for me when I got a sense that the treatment was starting to lose its, its effect was that the flare-ups came back. So the normally one to two trips to the bathroom a day started to turn into five, started to turn into 10, started to turn into 20. So the increase in frequency uh, was a clear indicator. And then the blood would uh, would appear in the stool again um, when, when a treatment started doing its thing. For me, I had about two years on a five ASA that worked really well. And then all of a sudden, like when that stopped working, I could feel the flare-ups coming back and other treatments, basically the same course of action and I would need prednisone to get the flare-up under control. And that's typically how things kind of worked for me for several years where I've tr- tried treatment, it would work for a little bit, stop working, go on prednisone, try to transition to the next treatment, that would stop working, go back to prednisone, and so on and so on. And even eventually the prednisone stopped having the immediate impact that it once did. And I think I could start on around 40 milligrams a day at the start of a flare-up to try to get it under control. Eventually, that had to go up to 60 milligrams a day to get the flare-up under control. So things just stopped uh, working as well as they could. And for me, biologics were... There were more biologics on the table, I think, when I opted for my surgery compared to possibly when you had yours, Amber. But Yeah, there were zero. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that made the decision a little bit easier for you. I think for me... there was so I did I did try one biologic that worked for about a month before it stopped working, mm-hmm. and at that point, I felt like that was the sign for me that maybe surgery was the best option. There were there was at least one other biologic approved at the time, and I think there were probably others that were very close to being approved. But when when I lasted a month on that treatment, and you know, I went into with it, went into it with all kinds of hope and thinking, all right, this is the one. Like I'm gonna finally get things under control. And then after a month, it's right back to a flare up. I thought, okay, at, at this point, it feels like it's almost an inevitability that the surgery is gonna come. If it's not now, it's gonna be after the next failed treatment or the one after that. So might as well get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Every time a treatment started to wane in its effects, I'd I'd see the uh, the diarrhea go up again. I'd see the blood in the stool again. It was pretty, it was pretty routine, and uh, it was a good clear indicator that it was time to move on to the next treatment, or in my case, that uh, the treatment of surgery when when the time came. Mm-hmm. The fact that it was pretty routine and that you knew what was coming, uh, that's just that's upsetting. That's upsetting because it sounds like you never really got to a place where you were in a sustained remission. It's upsetting, but at the same time, it was helpful in the sense that I knew very clearly, like, this is not working. And maybe that helped me progress to the next treatment a little bit sooner than if I had just tried to kind of, you know, beat a dead horse with a treatment that obviously wasn't working, but I just really wanted it to work. Yeah. Uh, so just being able to move on to the next thing may have, may have been a blessing in disguise, I suppose. 
Yeah. Is there anything else that you wish that you had known you expressed that you wished that you'd had sort of a roadmap going into your disease and knowing what some of the possible outcomes could be? Is there anything else that would have helped you if you had known it sooner? I think knowing the potential severity of the disease in in a way actually would have been helpful at the start because Mm -hmm. I was under the impression after my diagnosis that I take some pills because that was my first prescription with with a 5-ASDN pills. Take these pills, everything else in life is normal, and you'll be fine. And that's just your life from here on out. And I thought, okay, like that's very manageable. That's easy. Like that's no problem. I can handle that. And no one had really prepare me for what would happen if the treatment failed or if like was there another treatment to take and would that still keep life relatively simple uh, i didn't think that it would eventually lead to you know having to try diet changes and different treatments and have to consider what kind of work i did where i could do my work because i want to stay close to uh you know better medical professionals or, or hospitals if i need to so there was a lot that was left unsaid when, when I was first diagnosed. And I'm one that likes to at least know what could happen to me rather than, you know, put my fingers in my ears and say like, no, 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 nothing bad's going to happen. Everything's going to be great. I'll take these pills. Everything will be fine. Uh, just knowing what could have been in store, I think would have braced me a little bit more because when things did go wrong and they did go wrong, I think it, it hit me a lot harder than if I had some sort of feeling that this might be a possibility because uh, it felt like maybe I was either not doing things well enough myself or mm-hmm. the simple treatment that wasn't working for me made me feel as though I had like a really bad case. I guess I did have a pretty bad case of ulcerative colitis, obviously, mm-hmm. but um, I always had the feeling at the start when I was first diagnosed that this was going to be relatively easy to manage and it mm-hmm. turned out to not be that. But Rashid, you bring up such an important aspect of how uh, I should think about the experience of the people living with ulcerative colitis, because, you know, one of the struggles is, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say, okay, you need to be on treatment X, Y, and Z, because those are tangible items that I can prescribe. But, you know, what I will say is a a lot of people's journey with ulcerative colitis is very challenging and it's fraught with a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I always try to say, okay, let's, there's room for optimism, you know, let's, let's do this and then let's see but I know I can see how much of an emotional and psychological toll it takes to just go after one medication after another or go on another course of steroids. So just out of curiosity, you know, how can people like myself help and be better? Giving instructions on how to give an enema. I mean, like that's, <laughs> I've never heard of that before. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. uh, but just the, having a, a, a realistic outlook on things it's important to have that room for optimism, certainly. I think that's vital. You can't uh, tell people, like, oh, you have this disease now and everything's going to be terrible. So let's brace yourself for that. Like, we don't want to have that kind of message either. But having a, an, a realistic understanding of what could happen and knowing that there are contingencies, I think that is the key for me, is, is not just saying, okay, these bad things could happen and then, well, we'll see what happens then. But knowing these bad things could happen and if they do, we can treat it with X, Y, Z whatever it may be. It's interesting. I say Z as opposed to Z because I'm You do. You do. <laughs> Nothing else it, picked up on that. But, and it uh, automatically sounds more fancy. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds more for, you know, it sounds more formal. It sounds like an actual letter, not some weird sound that you're making. No, um, but having those contingencies, I think, would be something that would be very helpful to know that these potentially adverse events could happen. But if they do, we have a, we have 
plans in place that could potentially treat that um, rather than just saying like here's this treatment now on your way everything will be fine Rashid, do you have any fun or embarrassing stories to tell about your ulcerative colitis? Of course I do. I know you have many. There's tons of embarrassing stories. And uh, fall of 2011, I was coming out of a flare-up, or at least I was on uh, prednisone to come out of a flare-up, and, and things were starting to, the, the medication was starting to help at the time, so uh, the number of trips to the bathroom per day was starting to come down, and you know life was becoming a little bit more manageable, to the point where I thought, okay, I'm in good enough shape to go running again. And, you know, I hadn't done it in a while, so it'll be good for me. I'll get out and, and, and the medication is working, so I'll be fine. And maybe one kilometer into the run, of course, felt like I had to go and couldn't hold it in. So I'm trying to slow down, trying to hold it in. Nothing's working and, and things start uh, making their way out. And so I happened to be in a place where there was a wooded area just off to the side of the road where I was running. So I ran into the wooded area. Uh, at that point, lots of stuff had come out and I used clumps of leaves mm. to try to clean things up as best as I could in that wooded area also to take you know cover from other people who may be in the general vicinity so, but i was using leaves as my uh toilet paper to try to clean things up as best as i could not to the point where i felt like okay now i'm ready to go face the world again but just uh enough to clean up the mess and get myself to the point where i can be comfortable enough to walk that kilometer back home so that was that was the run and and leaves in the wooded area embarrassing story oh i thought you were gonna say it was poison ivy and i was about to say <laughs> <laughs> that's, why I was just, that's why i was just like oh my god no you know it's it, and it's funny because now i'm thinking back to that time and i wasn't even really thinking about what kind of leaf will i use i'm just thinking like what's like dry and kind of big enough to like form something that would be you know good as a, a toilet paper substitute right now luckily nothing worse from uh, from my foray into into the woods that day, uh, other than other than feeling embarrassment, which obviously isn't as bad now because I'm I'm openly talking about it, which is probably a good sign. Also, I was waiting for you to say that it was the run with the runs. <laughs> I tried not to make it. Too, I mean, that was too obvious, Amber. I didn't want to. I didn't want to make it too. You know, like oh. I already had like one like get to the bottom of it pun today, so I didn't want to you know overload this episode with, uh, with oh, too many cheesy on. things. You know, come on, you know me. Um, so, Doctor Ha, I in doing the research prior to this episode. I discovered something that I didn't know about you, and I was horrified to learn that I didn't know this about you. But you did Jimmy Kimmel's colonoscopy <laughs> in 2018, what? and I did not know. Yes. I did. Yeah, and he it, chugged that bowel prep like you're not supposed to do. <laughs> when I saw him just down the bowel prep, I thought, oh, he is not going to appreciate what he just did in two hours. <laughs> So, well, tell me about 
that, though. Like, is mm-hmm. there anything that you can share from that? And how mm-hmm. did you know, were you there with him during the mm-hmm. prep as well? I mean, that's some really, like, you know, red carpet treatment, if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, well, he, um, so it was all part of a an event for Stand Up to Cancer, mm-hmm. um, which is foundation that was started by Katie Couric. And March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And I got a phone call from um, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Mark Pochapin, who's at um, NYU who is very involved with Stand Up to Cancer. And he said, oh, you know, I have a fun little activity for you to do. And I thought, "Uh, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to say no to you. And fun is fun. And he said, how would you like to scope Jimmy Kimmel? And I thought, all right, that's fine. Uh, You know, not a big deal. Sure. And then, uh, and so I actually was not aware of how uh, much of a production this was going to be until I showed up around five in the morning and they had me do all this sticky stuff like, play an operation <laughs> game and um and oh, I, arrived, I, I arrived in my scrubs um I woke up I didn't have my Starbucks yet so I might have been a little grumpy and the funny part about it is they said okay we're gonna let you you know get ready and I thought to myself yeah this this, this is what you're getting <laughs> I'm not gonna be on camera what are you talking about but um no I, I mean I thought it was uh it was a really um, a great thing for him to do because he had filmed the night before and he had this bit with Katie Couric. That's where um, he drank the bowel prep and he got up early and, you know, I was really worried that he wasn't going to be clean. So mm. <laughs> he was perfectly clean. And, um, it, you know, I have to say it's it's tough to be that sticky at like five in the morning, but he did a great job. <laughs> they brought him balloons and I thought it was a really great opportunity um, and uh, to bring awareness to colon cancer and, um, he was he was a lot of fun. Um, next time I know that when um, you get a call about doing something on a celebrity for colon cancer, that maybe they expect you to put on some makeup and to fix your hair. <laughs> but, but it was great. And uh, uh, it, it was a nice experience. De- definitely something different from my day job. <laughs> <laughs> I also, yeah. you know, I was most dis- disappointed that I didn't get to meet Guillermo. You know, Kimmel's mm. one thing, but Guillermo. I was also worried that he was going to drink Kimmel's bowel prep too, because that would have been- <laughs> fit kind of their bit, right? <laughs> but yeah, that's that's how that came about. I can't believe that I didn't know. I can't believe you don't introduce yourself to people that way. <laughs> Hi, my name is Dr. Ha. I did Jimmy Kimmel's uh, colonoscopy. But uh, it was interesting. I think it was, you know, watching the clip, his his bowel was really clean. It was super clean. I mean. And not only that, but like he was so witty after waking up from that nap, what I usually call the propofol nap, mm-hmm. that I, I like I would never allow anyone to film me. <laughs> After that. And so it was incredible. I'm old enough to have remembered when Katie Couric's husband died of colon cancer. Mm -hmm. And then she became a crusader for that and the the Katie Couric effect and how many people got screened after she herself got screened on the Mm -hmm. Today Show. I was a big fan Mm -hmm. of hers back in back of the day, watched it every morning before I went to work. So it was fantastic to see that, to watch that. I'm sorry I didn't know about it before just a few days ago, but I'm glad I got to speak to you about it because I think that's really important and good for you. And you looked beautiful. I mean, you know, I mean, you know that you're smart and amazing and, you know, we love you for all of that. But you did. You looked beautiful. They whipped out that operate. I'll put put the link in the show notes for people to watch the clip themselves. But they whipped out that operation game. And I was like, what the hell is going on right now? What are they doing to her? (laughs) 
Me too. <laughs> and I was so worried about people were going to criticize my technique. I could hear my colleagues saying, find the lumen. Are my ergonomics correct? But yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you dealt with it exceptionally well. So I think that's amazing and I, everybody needs to watch it. Thank you both so much for coming on about IBD. I knew this would be a fantastic episode because I know both of you and how you are and discussing charts is like totally a first for this show, but I think it won't be the last time. So thank you <laughs> both for your time and for everything that you do for patients with IBD. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Always happy to be here. Thank you so much, Andrew. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Dr. Christina Ha for bringing her knowledge and perspective to this topic and for being an amazing IBDologist and collaborator. Thank you also to Rashid Clark for being so insightful and for sharing an embarrassing ulcerative colitis story that many of us can relate to. And on a personal note, thanks for always answering my texts. Links to a written transcript, social media handles, more information on the topics we discussed, and the video of Dr. Ha giving a colonoscopy to Jimmy Kimmel is in the show notes and on my episode 107 page on aboutibd.com. You can also follow me across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. This American Gastroenterological Association Colitis Conversations program was supported by Pfizer, Inc., about IBD as a production of Mal and Cal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio.